Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing, technology, the internet, uh, the law. Um, excited to be back in studio as well. Uh, we are three uh, behind the desk, which um, we haven't been for at least a year. So um, that's really got us jazzed. Dan, are you excited to be here? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been uh, doing a lot of uh, broadcasting from here, but uh, just seeing all the faces on uh, on the Skype screen. So it's good to yeah, be back in the studio with everyone. Uh, it's lovely. It's very wholesome. You can see below our necks, which yeah. is exciting. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and I'm not suspicious at all of what you were doing below your neck uh, when you were at home. Yeah, well, we weren't ironing our, our strides as yeah. often as we were, but <laughs> yeah. we were still there. Absolutely. Uh, Joe, how about yourself? Um, you've, you've been in and out of the studio a little bit, but not so um, much for bite, I guess. Yeah. No, not for bite. I've been doing a bunch of fills, which has been... Mm. Fun and music-filled, but yes. What's what's different in the studio? Have we been kitted out to protect we ourselves have, against the leg? We have plexi screens to protect us. I feel like from... I want to ask for like a 50 and like two 20s and a 10 and slide something over the counter for you or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> just, don't, just don't jump it and, yeah. Reach for my bag or anything yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. We'll be careful. Um, we have got uh, uh, an interesting show for you tonight. Um, wage theft uh, is also, well, almost becoming the norm uh, in some industries, um, especially uh, places like retail and, and hospitality, where sort of um, surveyed people up to 60 or 70% have been um, uh, involved in wage, wage theft or, or certainly um, aware of it um, amongst their colleagues. Um, University of Melbourne School of Government is looking into this and um, doing something about it, hopefully. So uh, Professor John Howe, who's the director of uh, Melbourne School of Government, who knew they've got a School of Government, that's interesting, um, and the Centre for Employment and Labor Relations Law um, at Melbourne Law School at uh, UniMelb, uh, is going to um, have a chat to us in a second about uh, wage theft and uh, data science, which should be good. Um, also, I, I guess we all often think about this um, when we get our screen time reports or, or kind of notice a, a friend or a partner or, or somebody else kind of um, you know, staring into the abyss. Are we um, digitose or device codependent? Um, is the question we'll, we'll try and answer a little bit later in the show. Um, the 10th uh, mood off day, um, which is encouraging us to turn off our, our little black devices, um, uh, is coming up on February 28th. So uh, Eric Big Oak will be having a chat to us about uh, mood off day as well uh, later in the show. So stick around for that. But before those things, um, there's a, a bit of news going on. Um, uh, workers in the music industry are up in arms, Dan. Is, is that true? Yeah. So the United Musicians and Associated Workers, uh, which is a union, are holding a protest at Spotify offices for higher payouts. Um, so this is a worldwide uh, protest at every office that Spotify holds around the world. There's one in Melbourne, one in Sydney. I'm sure there's others in other cities around Australia. Um the Worldwide Day of Action for Justice at Spotify is on March 15th on 2021. Um, they're holding a socially distant demonstration uh, across the world to deliver their demands. Uh, they're demanding a penny per stream, increased transparency, an end to lawsuit against artists and more. Um, you can register your interest at the uh, Union of Musicians and uh, Allied Workers um, website. And, yeah, I just to... 
put it into context, asking for one full cent per stream, um, which at the moment is at 0.0032 cents a stream, which means a song that gets 100,000 plays only makes the artist $320. So uh, I think it's a fairly justified uh, protest. And if you're interested, like uh, like I said, visit the, uh, the Union of Musicians and Allies um, allied workers uh, to show your support. Mm. Yeah, I'm vibing on the little uh, logo they've got here with the the Spotify and the kind of um, the um, uh, what they've done with that. It's great. Yeah, yeah it's a throwing up face emoji almost in the middle of the Spotify logo. Uh, very very creative. Looking good. Yeah. Um, you've also been, uh, I, well, I guess in similar news, been sort of following the Metallica beat for us. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a big fan of Twitch and what it's able to provide, but being uh, a large tech company, it doesn't come without its issues. And uh, in a stroke of poetic justice, uh, because Metallica was one of the first uh, artists or it, really anyone to push back on file sharing uh, on the internet. I'm sure you all remember the mm. uh, Napster days. Um, they opened a concert w- uh, for uh, BlizzCon, which is a video games event for Blizzard Entertainment. And halfway through the stream, their music was uh, cut and replaced with 8-bit folk music because there was fear that there would be a DMCA strike against their own music, (laughs) which is an ironic turn of events for the band and also ridiculous that they can't stream their own music. Um, Poetic justice, I guess, uh, would be one way to to put it. But, yeah, it's, um, uh, it's highlights the issues that Twitch and streaming in general have with streaming music and... Uh, and copyright claims, which is a huge part of uh, any media streaming website such as YouTube or uh, Twitch where uh, an independent third party can claim content that may, they may or may not have the rights to, but the system is so broken that it will automatically uh, take down any content. So uh, Metallica has run afoul of that as well. It kind of seems to me like there should be, a, from like a pure technical solution, there should be a way that if you are a, a media creator or what have you, that there's a different kind of interface or login where you can just like play a few riffs and like get through the capture into the back end and actually just be able to play your own material yeah. through something like that. To be immune to copyright takes, takedowns, not completely uh, yeah. without responsibility, but maybe you could get through an entire stream before someone uh, says, hey, uh, you can't owe me money for playing my music or yeah. the like, yeah. Exactly. There's Yeah, there's a million possible solutions and Twitch needs to start or, you know, any of these companies, Twitch, YouTube, they all need to start looking into... Uh, supporting their creators uh, a little better with this kind of stuff, I think. Mm. Mm. Joe, you've been uh, keeping an eye uh, a little bit on, on Facebook and I, I guess it's been a, a huge story. It's kind of not just a, a yeah. tech thing, but um, yeah. media has been in a flap about it. What's What's been going on? Well, you may have heard our very own Vanessa um, on, break, on Breakfasters yesterday mm. having a chat about how Facebook have removed all Australian news content from their pages and you can't link to it in chat or anything like that. I think one of the first things I heard about it was when you messaged me and said, hey, our page is down. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I noticed that the Triple R Facebook page was down. Mm. And it's still down, but Mm. it will be back. Mm. Um, Late yesterday afternoon, um, the government have said that they reached a compromise with Facebook where if they can prove that they have 
um, arranged or signed enough contracts with uh, media outlets that they may let them off of this um, whole mm. Mm. debacle. I didn't see Dave Houchin walking around with a big check or anything like that before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's in the mail, Dave, or you have to check your pigeonhole or something like that. Yeah. Definitely the pigeonhole. Nobody ever opens their pigeonhole. I've kind of been, yeah, uh, upset at this story just because it's two big media giants that I have no interest... I think I fall on the side of the media in Australia more so than Facebook, but mm. they're just upset that they're not making as much money as they used to. It's, it's mm. uh, just a, a terrible, two, two terrible companies fighting, or, you know, the Australian <laughs> media industry fighting Facebook. It's, uh, it's all terrible, I think. It's a tough one. I imagine just kind of like raising it at the proverbial barbecue or putting it to the pub test. Are you in favour of the Zuck? The federal government or Rupert Murdoch? <laughs> yeah. choose, choose a side. Yeah, that's like the uh, kiss, marry, kill scenario. Is, and is there none of the I, none of the above option? There is a none of the above option. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. you can listen to radio and, and get, get <laughs> yeah, your listen there. to Triple R. That's that's the way to go. That's the way. Yeah. Interesting. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think there will be more to come out of that. It's uh, it's not just a, a flush in the pan. So we will keep an eye on it. Um, one thing that um, I, I guess in kind of uh, more kind of um, uh, pleasing news, um, a, a few years ago I, I worked on a thing um, around uh, uh, around sort of like I guess you'd say lifestyle diseases and diabetes was a large part of it and um, looking at it, it's very kind of hard to, to change behaviours and patterns around, uh, around these things. It's like it's food, it's exercise, it's sleep and smoking and all of those kinds of things. But um, I stumbled across this because, um, you know, we by no means kind of solved it when we were looking at it back then. But um, there's a, an interesting um, uh, startup in the States, um, Eat This, um, I think, um, that has been working on type 2 diabetes uh, in the States um, the rates are similar in America and Australia. Around uh, nine or ten percent of Americans and Australians um, are, are afflicted, and the risk group is huge. So around a third of um, adults uh, are at risk of developing type two diabetes. So um, actually, the, the software is called uh, January AI. Um, it's four years old, and it's a subscription-based service that um, began um, providing personalised nutritional activity activity-related suggestions to its customers based on uh, a combination of things. So it's food-related data. They obviously know sort of what um, all the different foods will sort of do in terms of your blood sugar and sort of ongoing use of particular foods or, you know, um, uh, alcohol and, and cigarettes and so forth. So they've, they've, they've figured out a, a number of contributing factors and um, you, you start to put in what you've been doing and what you've been using um, and it pulls in um, the data and gives you advice on what you should be doing. And it the interesting thing is it's not... There's not a, a generic solution to this. I can't say, you know, Joe, donate cheese, or Dan, you're only allowed to have six units of alcohol uh, a week. Um, everyone's a little bit different. Um, and historically, you know, as you can imagine, they do it by, um, you know, the average person of this age or weight um, having this type of sort of exercise and diet would get these types of results. It's far more complicated than that. Um, so, uh, yeah, they've got um, an atlas of 16 million foods. Um, they've gone through a, a sort of 1,000-person clinical study up through it, and um, they've just got some uh, more funding to, to kind of roll it out. So I really like that idea. I think it's very hard to sort of pick up generic advice and say, hey, get your four or five bits of exercise a week and, you know, eat, eat these vegetables and, and you won't get it because you can mm. um, still get it. Um, uh, so I could see this being implemented with those new, like, Garmin watches and other yeah. health watches that measure, like, your heart rate and your beat uh, heartbeats per minute and uh, all this uh, health data. So I could yeah. see that being implemented with something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 
fascinating and potentially life-saving. Really. Yeah, totally. Yeah. One thing that's not really saving our lives is uh, countless uh, video meetings, uh, as we a lot of us have been doing over the past year or so, whether you're a, a kid going to school uh, via the Zooms or whether um, you're just kind of checking in with your colleagues um, endlessly. Um, video communication has been a, a large part of uh, our lives um, in the past year. Um, Stanford University has done a bit of a study into um, what we feel so exhausted. Have, have you folks found it a little bit more tiring than the average kind of face-to-face catch-up doing the, the um, video chats? I'm more of a – my job's more uh, personal anyway, so I've been going into work. <laughs> I haven't been uh, so many meetings, but um, I'm, meeting, I'm just tired all the time anyway. So, <laughs> yes, I've been feeling fatigued. Feeling fatigued. Yeah. We might have an answer here. What, what about you, Joe? Did you do a few video chats? Yeah, yeah, but I've had the the reverse of um, I've moved from a job where I was um, looking after people all, in person all the time to mm. sitting behind a, a desk and having the zooms. And I find having the zooms a lot less tiring than oh, great dealing mm. with people. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you're an, maybe you're an edge case. I don't, I, I don't know, but. Um, no, that's great. Um, so th- they have been looking into it. Um, th- there has been a lot of uh, feedback in the past year that um, it's just uh, a, a, a lot more of a load on people to kind of pay attention, to be constantly vigilant, to kind of do these things through video chat, things that you don't necessarily have to do when you're in a room. Um, if you're in a room, people can see that you're taking things in and you might be staring out the window, but they can see that you're thinking rather than you know playing Minecraft or something like that. But um, yeah, this new study from Stanford um, has uh, identified, I guess, four, four main reasons that um, people are struggling a little bit. Um, the first one is people are staring at you. So when you're in a, a usual kind of setting, um, when you're with people, not everyone's going to be staring at you. Like imagine if you're at a pub and or a, you know, uh, or a community meeting or something like that, and you've got 20 people staring at you in the face and doing that for half an hour or 45 minutes. It's a little bit different to being occasionally making eye contact and and talking to people and so forth. So we, we kind of reach this state of being um, stressed and, and hyper aroused by excessive stretches of close up eye contact. So we're just not used to that, um, and it's very different to to sort of regular types of catch-ups. Another thing that is at play is that um, people are in our personal space. So we've got a personal space boundary of about 60 centimetres around us, and mostly the only people that get inside that space are families or loved ones or, or intimates or what have you. All of a sudden, you've got you know Fred from accounts and Sally from invoicing, kind of like right in your personal space, and you don't know these people. Um, so we're just not used to having people in our intimate space uh, in that way, you know, strangers and colleagues and and so forth. So one of their suggestions was sit back a little bit. Um, so just kind of make a little bit more space, um, just kind of get the perspective a little bit better, rather than you know hunching over your laptop or or right up against your monitor. Um, the other thing, I had a, a good long list of them here. Um, the other things were um, there's a high noise to signal ratio. So, for example, when you're having a phone call with someone, you're really only paying attention to what they're saying and that's all you have to listen to. You can't pick up on, like, you know, verbal cues or sign language or, or, or anything that would be sort of um, adding sort of subtext to the to the communication. But instead with video chats, like people are baking cakes and they're knitting and they're, you know, scrolling through other things and you're trying to pay attention to what five or six different people are doing with all of their other things. There's a cat in the room and there's a dog and, you know, there's a baby and all of that kind of stuff. So it's just a, there's a lot of noise uh, to signal. Um, and the last one suggests, which is really interesting, um, is that seeing our own reflection in the screen, as, as I can right now, um, also um, uh, is a bit triggering for us. We, we sort of enter in, 
some of us, not all of us, and only some of the time, I would imagine, enter into a, a self-critical phase where we're being confronted with our own reflection and our own identity. And it's a little bit weird compared to, I would say, being at that community meeting or the pub where you can't see yourself and go, oh, my God, you know, my hair's not doing the right thing or I'm still wearing that T-shirt that I don't like or, or something like that. Yeah. So all of these things um, kind of equate to, to us being sort of less up for it, which is interesting. Very interesting. I've been wondering about it because I couldn't quite put my finger on it and some of those things kind of ring true. Yeah. Have you been feeling more tired from all your online meetings? Uh, I, I, like I don't have heaps of them, like, you know, no more than the sort of average kind of like you know, office worker or knowledge worker or what have you, but they, they just feel less, they're less satisfying or they're less, they feel less real. So you've kind of gone through the experience of exchanging information and things happen and decisions were made, but... There was none of that, you know, adrenaline or kind of like, you know, empathy or understanding or it's just kind of just feels like data, mm. I guess. It's kind of my experience. But um, I don't know. I reckon some music will perk me up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We're now joined uh, on the phone by uh, Professor John Howe, who is... Uh, Director of Melbourne School of Government uh, and Centre for Employment and Labour Relations Law at the Melbourne Law School at uh, UniMelb. Um, John, thanks for uh, making time to hang out with us tonight. Good to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I did. Uh, I, I was scrolling through our, our, our Twitter notifications on the way in here, and um, someone did say, "Hey, wow! Did you know that there was a School of Government at, uh, at Melbourne University? Is that um, is that a new thing? I, I feel I need to know how long has this been around." Uh, we've been around for about eight eight years now, so um, I guess new in the context of the University of Melbourne, but uh, we've we've been on the scene for a fair bit of time now. Nice. Um, uh, but yeah, we're a, an interdisciplinary school, so we um, sit across different faculties, and now we try to bring together the all the expertise at the university to try and address kind of real-world policy problems and engage with um, the world of practice. So, um, yeah. Seems seems a good remit. Nice. Um, so, I, I, wage theft, it, I, I guess um, for a lot of people they would have heard something about it and um, I guess it's kind of a uh, a, a new... New name, though probably not a new practice, but it did catch my eye in this this piece that um, has been published in Pursuit that um, uh, a 2019 report found that on average around 60% of survey respondents had experienced wage theft of, of some kind, but um, specifically young people, uh, the number could be up to uh, as high as 76%. So it's not a this is not an isolated thing; it's a, it's a it's a regular thing. Um, is, is that fair to say? Yeah. Look, I think I think. Um, uh there seems to be quite a lot of non-compliance and exploitation of workers, particularly young workers out there. I think um, since 2015, you know, you might have might be aware of the 7-Eleven scandal where um, I think it was the ABC um, broke a story about 7-Eleven franchises. Uh, underpaying their workers through various techniques. And since then, um, we just seem to be seeing um, case after case of large-scale uh, non-compliance or wage theft, as it's often called these days, um, across, you know, large businesses right down to small ones. And 
you know, often inadvertent, but there's also seems to be plenty of deliberate um, exploitation going on as well. Um, is there any, uh, like, industries that are more susceptible to this kind of, uh, manip- uh, like, pay manipulation than others? Yeah, look, there seems to be, um, you know, seems to be a higher... Um, higher prevalence in certain industries, so certainly horticulture, um, you know, retail, hospitality, um, security and cleaning, those sorts of industries based based on what the Australian regulator, the Fair Work Ombudsman, um, has found, and also there have been sort of various studies, particularly in relation to migrant workers and, and to students, actually, yeah. So, yeah, we mentioned uh, children earlier or, um, you know, uh, younger people and you just mentioned migrant workers as well. Are, are these the most uh, vulnerable and susceptible people to this kind of behaviour? Yeah, they often are. So when we when we talk about young people, we're sort of um, referring to the 15 to 24-year-old age group, um, but also migrant workers and students from overseas uh, tend to be more vulnerable because um, they're more reluctant to complain. Um, you know, they're, they're, I guess, early on in their working career when we're talking about young people and more willing to just accept having a job and earning some money, even if they know it's, you know, not, not what they should be receiving or they may not actually even be aware of what their entitlements are that's the other issue yeah interesting and uh, i i understand from the um uh from from what we've been reading about what you're up to um there's a bit of uh data science involved here and and there's some thoughts on how how we might start to identify and, and start to address it is that right yeah that's right so the the project um the project um that uh, I'm involved with is trying to use data science and um, digital technology to well do a few things improve improve awareness and engagement with young people around their rights and what's happening to them um, but also to try and improve the data that's available on on non-compliance and wage theft and then to to use that data to to try and identify where there are problem areas um, in the la- in the labour market and in the economy. I would have thought that um, someone like the ATO would have been kind of all over this and could have said, you know, these are the kinds of sort of um, uh, filings that we're seeing coming through and, you know, this industry should be sort of paying X, but they're actually paying Y and there's a there's a gap there. Maybe we should be out there, you know, whether it's partners like University of Melbourne or others kind of um, working with that. Is, is there existing ways that we, we can identify wage theft or is there like a real gap um, that, that you're hoping to address? Yeah, look, you make a really good point there, Warren, about the, the ATO. I mean, the, the Fair Work Ombudsman is, is itself trying to obviously um, detect wage theft as part of its function, um, but I know the, F, the FWO tries to engage with other regulators that might have data and, um, uh, the, 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 you know, that might be, there might be common issues, you know, across, across different areas. 
But they do, but but obviously, particularly FWO has limited resources. You know, as as do the unions and advocacy groups for migrant workers and um, uh, young young people. Um, and so there does seem to be gaps in the in the data. And so that's what uh, this project, which we initiated at the university, we're sort of bringing together the people who work in digital design and um, information science, data analysis and data ethics, along with my expertise is more around the, the regulation and looking at the enforcement systems to try and you know, identify those gaps and develop some ways to, um, you know, to improve the data that's available and then, and then, you know, hopefully to develop a tool that can, can help mine that data um, to identify those problem areas. So there, there's data on um, that kind of stuff, but is there data on where this, uh, where this behaviour starts? Like, is it, is it just pure greed or is it uh, external factors like uh, maybe rent's too high or, um, like, prices are too low or um, things like that? Yeah, look, it's, I think it's a range of circumstances um, that can drive, you know, uh, wage theft. Sometimes it is just, um, it, you know, deliberate exploitation of workers, often because businesses think they can get away with it. So, you know, it's, you know, you can save money on um, underpaying your workforce and there's, there's, I don't think there's a high risk of getting caught. So certainly, you know, if we can... Im- if we can use data science to improve the likelihood of detection, I think that's going to itself have a deterrent effect on that sort of group. But, yeah, look, there's also, you know, um, there might be other economic pressures driving it or it might be, um, you know, just difficulty um, managing the or understanding the um, different you know, wage entitlements that exist in our system. But again, we think, you know, data science can provide solutions to those sorts of um, issues and to improve employer awareness of of their obligations um, as well. I'm just kind of imagining a, a really kind of nice government service response to this where you, like, sign up for your, your first job or your second job and you get this kind of email going, hey, you've chosen a bum job. Um, you should you should be watching out for this, um, uh, X, Y, Z. Yeah. I, I feel like getting on the front foot about this and just um, letting some of these vulnerable groups know what the questions are, how to kind of show that they're not going to be pushed around or uh, or taken advantage of. But uh, it's so it's called, uh, I think, Fair Day's, Fair Day's Pay or Fair Day's Work. I'm just... Uh, fair yeah, day's work. Fair, yeah, yeah, the fair day's work project. Yeah, and and what what are some of the um, if you could tell us anything about some of the uh, I guess principles behind um, what you're hoping to do with data science? What what are some of the kind of um, things that you might um, do through the project? Well, there's, there's three there's three broad streams. The first is developing a fair day's work portal, um, and that and that might include a few different things. Um, certainly, uh, we want to um, develop a public dashboard which collects data um, and and might, you know, feed that into the... And they might, that data might be feeded into the... fed into the published public dashboard. 
uh, about non-compliance across geographic areas and and industries. And there might be tools as part of that portal to enable people to report, you know, non-compliance or at least to access information about their entitlements. The second stream is the wage theft database. So this is where we want to try and um, assess what data there is at the moment and then use natural language programming techniques and semi-automated text extraction to create a data collection tool. So we want to really try and build a better database of what's going on. And then the third is that wage protection wage theft prediction tool I mentioned. So when we've got the wage theft database, um, we want to develop a tool that can then predict wage theft risk um, to to assist regulators, unions, community organisations and business groups to identify the problem areas and some of that information can be fed back into the public dashboard. Uh, that sounds like like a fantastic project and uh, like it's really going to help a lot of people. Um, it sounds like it's uh, not quite there yet. What what are some things that people can do now if they suspect that they might be uh, a victim of wage theft? Oh, look, yes, we're just we're really in the early days of the project, um, so there's still a way to go. Um, if people have issues uh, at the moment then I think going to the Fair Work Ombudsman um, is, is a good place to go. Uh, trade unions, if, you're, um, uh, if you've got a union in your industry or sector. Um, for young people, the Young Workers Centre um, is a really good resource uh, and can sort of provide advice and so on. Um, and they're also... Um, other community legal centres that can often help with these sorts of issues. And then Job Watch as well, which is a, um, a legal centre dedicated to employment issues, uh, is a really good um, place to go to. Well, that uh, sounds like a great initiative. And uh, if people want to um, find out about more uh, about the project, where, where can they go or, or how can they be involved, John? Um, well, you can uh, contact us through the Melbourne School of Government. Um, send us an email or, um, you know, DM um, me on Twitter or um, my colleague Tim Cariotis is also pretty active on Twitter uh, about this issue uh, and the Faraday's work project. Yep, we'll, we'll tweet that out as well so uh, people can get across the account. But, um, yeah, great. sounds great. Thank you. Thank you for talking with us tonight. Yeah, thank you, everyone. Thanks for having me on. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Bite Into It on Triple R with Joe, Dan and Warren back in the studio uh, for the first time in a year. Um, You may not have noticed, but we were um, all distributed and spread out with uh, varying levels of connection and and sound quality. So it's nice to have some uh, good kit to play with. Um, speaking of kit, uh, we are now going to have an, an interesting conversation around, um, I guess not just the past year where we have kind of really relied on our devices a, a little bit more than usual, but more so in general. Um, there is a, a, an initiative called Mood Off Day, which um, is coming up on February uh, 28th. Um, I think it's in its 10th year. And it's around the idea that um, we are perhaps getting a little too dependent on uh, devices such as um, smartphones. 
um, to have a chat to us about uh, Mood Off Day. We're now joined by Eric Bigok. Uh, Eric, thanks for taking time to have a, a chat to us. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Um, what, what was the inspiration for this? Is there a personal connection to kind of, you know, realising that, you know, maybe you were doing too much on your phone or, um, you know, there's sort of better controls we can put around our technology? How, how did you get involved in this? So look, I personally got involved with it right at the beginning when uh, Tupper Centre Party founded the initiative in uh, Sydney. And at the root of founding it was actually the fact that him and his wife kept having this sort of nagging at each other that they're constantly on the phone until one day he sort of nipped the post on the driveway coming home into the house, you know, kind of put kind of the, the real manifestation of the impact of, you know, the phone use in the wrong, at the wrong time. Uh, really uh, to the fore. And he said, well, look, I'm going to do something about it. And Mood Off Day was born that year, which is now 10 years ago. And, you know, of course, uh, we all live around our phones and our daily, you know, habits are often guided by the phone or are closely linked to the phone. And and over the past decade, we have, you know, seen and taken focus on different aspects of how we, you know, um, have the benefit of our phones, but there's also that shadow side and the mood of day is really a way for us to realise just how much we and our lives are ruled by the phone rather than the other way around. Yeah, I've, I've been... Uh, actually, no, it was, a, it was a, um, uh, listening to something on the weekend around um, uh, Nir Fail, who, who wrote um, Hooked about algorithms and how a lot of apps and services have been designed to, to keep us hooked in and so forth, uh, was talking about how we, we love the, the freedom of new technology and, and how great it is, but we don't enjoy the personal responsibility that comes with it. So, you know, we blame technology and we say it's the technology's fault and, and, and so forth, but um, it, it's maybe a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, I'd be interested to know what um, what it was like with the early mood off days. What, what kind of people were coming in to kind of you know switch off their phone for, for half a day or something like that? And is it is it just a general thing? Are we all trying to do it, or is is it attractive to particular people or particular circumstances? Well, look, it's it's really been um, always aimed at uh, everyone that uses uh, smartphones or you know I guess devices. And with everything getting online and the Internet of Things and smart homes, we're constantly sort of online and technology-driven. And sometimes we kind of just overlook the personal connection with that. And especially when we, you know, grab our phone the first thing in the morning and it's the last thing we kind of uh, have in our hands before we go to bed at night. And then there's the whole role modelling in front of our kids and they're becoming more technology-driven. And um, over the years, we have taken particular focus on different areas, not necessarily particularly, um, you know, groups or, or countries. Uh, over this decade, there have been 26 countries now with thousands of thousands of users, you know, joining uh, Mood Off Day, pledging to go without for five hours. Whether they all achieve that or not is the second question. But, um, um, and, you know, uh, one year we focused on the whole texting while driving thing. Another year was around kids at school and mobile, mobile phone use there. Um, another year we really focus on to, uh, to kind of stop using your phone during meal times, and, and one strategy that worked really well was to, to kind of get everyone to place their phone in the middle of the table, and, and if you're out at a restaurant for lunch with your colleagues or your friends and family, whoever answers their phone first has to pay the bill. It kind of ups the ante to res- re- restrain from just being constantly on the phone, but you just spend time face-to-face with people. Mm. So this kind of initiative also places a lot of, uh, or like the onus on on people and individuals who are using the phones, and not so much on like uh, 
companies who are developing uh, apps and and other things with dark patterns in mind to try to get people in longer. Um, what what are some practical ways that people can avoid this kind of manipulation by uh, larger um, tech companies that are are trying to grab our attention constantly? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, the thing is, I guess once you engage with one particular, you know, platform or whatever, they try to keep you there, which is why their search facilities and news and, uh, you know, memories and, and uh, all these kind of trigger points that exist to keep us engaged and keep us active. And, you know, often some of those, um, you know, posts from the platform rather than from, you know, friends or connections, you know, come first thing in the morning and kind of engage you early and keep you on the platform. So a great way to do that is, you know, to, um, you know, turn off your notifications or to put the app section not on the home page of your phone but have it two pages down so that essentially when you're looking at your phone, it's not the, the first thing you see and the first thing you click. You have to kind of go and do it. It's a little bit what a lot of office is doing in terms of checking your emails and, and that kind of stuff to have designated times to do that rather than whenever an email pops up unless it's, of course, urgent. So it's kind of making, creating a habit around, you know, when I'm going to use those things. And after all, you know, they're smartphones. So if we are in a meeting or if I'm spending time with my partner or my kids or I'm having a meal, you know, if there's a call that comes or a social media message beeps, I can, I can essentially ignore it until I'm done with my face-to-face -face time or my meeting or my meal, and then I tend to it. They're seldomly that urgent that they are life and death and that I have to kind of drop everything. But we think they do, and I think these tech giants design their platforms and their apps in a way that we are constantly on this, you know, search for the next like or, you know, follow or comment on a post and that keeps us on their platforms. So it's really like anything, creating a new habit and a new habit or creating those really starts with becoming aware of what our current sort of habits are. And that's what this day is really aiming to achieve. If you uh, want to pledge, we invite you to do so on the 20th of February and to go without your phone for five hours. And many people find it very difficult. Um, but it certainly raises that awareness of, geez, I, I do actually use my phone every 20 minutes, so five hours is a really long time. Yeah, I was um, just thinking that myself. Uh, like, I think I'm a little bit arrogant about it and would say, oh, I could do five hours, no worries. But uh, I, I'm not sure how often I pick my phone up, but it's always in my pocket. I'm using it constantly. What's like, what's the success rate for people who, who who do this challenge? Look, the success rate varies a little bit. You know, if you do it in the group and we know that people have kind of gotten together and said, well, we're going to do a barbecue on Sunday, so we're going to lock our phones all up in a box or just put them in a box somewhere and we're just going to interact with each other and have this barbecue. And then, of course, the kids start ranging because they want to play their games and then, you know, we hear the phone ring and then we go, oh, you know, it might be something important. But often it's not, and it's just a kind of a tendency that we feel that, you know, we need to constantly be on and by our phones and respond to it. And, and I guess it's this sort of awareness thing and, and, and training ourselves um, to maybe um, be less ruled by what the phone does. We're not saying phones are bad. We're not saying live without phones. Um, they're great devices that can, you know, help with productivity and saving time and being accessible to work and whatever we need to do contactable on the run, but when they are sort of the one that is our closest relationship, closer than our partners, our kids, our family and friends, then, you know, uh, maybe it's something we need to look at. And the point you raised about this sort of degree of ignorance, I think a lot of people are, you know, think, oh, you know, I, I, I could stop 
my habits if I want to do I just don't want to. But it's kind of really, if you look at it, can I actually go without it? Or do I have no more phobia the moment that I haven't had my phone in my pocket? Or the moment my battery runs out, do I get anxiety? And there are symptoms of addiction. And um, there's a lot of scientific research now showing that, you know, the behaviorisms and the responses we get when we don't have our phone or we don't have reception or battery, then we display the same symptoms that uh, people with addiction have. And, and that's what we get sort of trying to shine the spotlight on, really. Um, I actually love it when my phone battery dies, especially when I'm out and I can't charge it. I'm like, oh, I've got an hour or two where I don't have the little thing pinging away. Like, you know, I don't mind it. Obviously, these things are designed to kind of give us the dopamine hit and so forth. But um, also when it goes, I'm like, fantastic. You know, I don't have to be writing emails. Breaking or, that chain. Or doing that stuff, yeah. Um, yeah. I turned I off mean, all... Oh, sorry. I turned oh, off all notifications know. about five years ago except for urgent things. Mm. Highly recommend. Oh yeah, like there's no there's no reason for those things to be grabbing at you. Um, so so what um, if people want to get involved in Mood Off Day? What what would you encourage they do? I mean, obviously it's it's for some people it's going to be quite anxiety inducing. Um, what what's a good way to attack it if you do Mood Off Day? Do you think? Well, look. First of all, of course, it's great to go online, find us on social media under Mood Off Day, or go to the website moodoffday.org, um, and you can pledge that you are supporting. Uh, the initiative essentially by saying, well, I'm going to go. The great thing is always to buddy up. So if I was to challenge you or I challenge my partner, you challenge each other in the office, your production team said, hey, whether we can see that you can do it. And if you put a little anti onto it, then that might enhance it. So we can say, well, look, I bet you can't do it. I bet you 50 bucks you can't go for five hours without. And you might say, oh, no, no, I can do that. You know, kind of thing. It just kind of, it's just a playful way. Of, uh, we're not introducing gambling here, but it's just a playful world to kind of up the ante a bit, to have a buddy to hold you accountable, to actually go without and to see what happens. And from that point, you can then kind of go, well, maybe moving forward, I'll make a choice to like turn my phone on silent, leave it outside of my bedroom, so in my bedroom. I don't do the phone the last thing at night and the first thing in the morning. Or I might turn the notifications off or push some of the, the you know social media apps onto the second or third page. So I just use them consciously when I want to rather than by default when they just pop up and there's a message or something. Um, you can also support the initiative so we can do more outreach into schools, into particular target groups where it's more high risk um, around um, you know, the use of phones uh, at the wrong times, uh, such as texting with drive while driving and so forth. Um, and any donations are really greatly appreciated. It's a, you know, a grassroots initiative that's gone global and, you know, any little bit of funding is really important to um, raise more awareness and, and to develop programs for people where it really matters. Thanks, Eric. It's a great idea. We'll uh, tweet out some more links to, to uh, Mood Off Day. And, uh, yeah, good luck with um, sticking your phone under the cushion and going out there and getting in the grass and playing with your dog. Uh, thanks. And will you, will you pledge? Will you go without? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty keen. I've been having those exact same conversations, so um, I, I will be doing it. Fantastic. Awesome. Great to have you on board. Thanks for having us on there. No trouble. Um, we did want to just uh, call out one thing um, because we have talked about a, a couple of things related to, to lockdown and um, COVID-19. There's a new um, study that's come out from uh, MIT that has found that when you're deprived of uh, human interaction, your brain reacts in the same way it does to physical hunger. Um, so a lot of us and around the world are still um, socially distancing and um, uh, restricting their movements at the moment. 
they found that, um, yeah, when, when shown um, uh, photos of human interaction, people who have been isolated uh, respond in the same way and their brain, uh, brain regions in their brain light up um, uh, in the same places or the same way that uh, people who haven't eaten all day um, see a picture of pasta, um, which is interesting. Um, yeah, I think there was a lot of people talking about that and just talking about some of the things that they wanted to do. Like, you know, I just wanted to bump into someone or I just wanted to, like, feel the heat of, like, you know, people, like, at a club or a bar or, or something like that. But, um, yeah, they, they studied um, 40 volunteers uh, in a windowless room for 10 hours without access to their phones. There we go. Um, um, or they, can, they could use other things, but they just really, really craved that uh, interaction um, and were hungry for it, in fact. Um, thank you very much to uh, you, the listener, for um, uh, being part of our show tonight. Uh, thank you to John and uh, also to Eric. And a uh, special shout-out to our talks producer, uh, Elizabeth McCarthy. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 